Thank you, Mark. Um, we missed being here with you last week, but was uh, we were blessed to be able to, I think it's the first time ever that we were able to share Mother's Day with Casey's uh, family. That's one of the things about being in ministry and having family out of town, so that was a, a good thing for us as we were away at a wedding and being able to do that. And I heard that Gary finished Romans 9, so I'm going to preach a Mother's Day sermon. Oh, okay. Um, no, we're going to jump back into our study in Romans chapter 9 this morning. And as Fletcher was talking, and as I knew the Gideons were going to be here, you know, we're so thankful to be able to support a group like the Gideons who, who believe in the power of God's Word and the stories that you hear that come from the Gideons about the power of God's Word going forth and it, and it, and it doesn't come back void, that God uses His Word. And it's just amazing to sit and to think that we have God's very Word printed in a way in which we can look with our eyes and see and understand and, and read. It, it just blows my mind. This morning in my quiet time, I was in 2 Timothy and was just encouraged as we come upon this difficult text, was encouraged as Paul was writing to young Timothy and he says, preach the Word. Uh, and so that's what we are going to do this morning. Now, just a brief recap here in Romans chapter 9. If you've been with us, what you know as we've been going through this chapter is that Paul is reaffirming the faithfulness of God in the face of some hardships. And the hardships, uh, according to Paul, and in this day and age, was that the Jews were rejecting their Messiah. And the Jews rejecting the Messiah became a problem uh, to Paul, and it should be a problem to us, because God had given a, a promise to Israel, and, and this promise seemingly was not coming true. And so Paul, as he's writing here to the church in Rome, is writing to help them to see uh, why God's Word has not failed and why God's promises do not fail. And this culminates, this argument, um, uh, through which we get to verse 19 today, uh, culminates in, in verses 15 through 18. And so let me read those to you real quickly. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. And so what we have, if you've been following with us, if you, is you have Esau, you have Ishmael, and you have Pharaoh, used as examples by Paul of, of, of people whom God has rejected or who, who their hearts have been hardened. And so then we come to this natural question in verse 19, because I want you to see the logic here and why this question is just the natural outflow of Paul's um, Paul's writing, and in verse 19, it says, So you'll say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? Or, another way to say this, is why is, if God works in this way, then why does God still hold man responsible? And so what I want you to see this morning uh, is, is two things. Now, Ultimately, Paul has two responses to this. And next week, 
we will get into the uh, kind of the answer to this. You know, Paul's answer, which uh, if you've studied this text, still leaves us a little incomplete in our finite human mind. We want more than Paul gives us next week, but we'll talk about that next week. But it's interesting, his first response this week is what we're going to get into in a moment. But first, first, before we get there, I want you to understand um, the tough question that Paul is asking. And, and I want to I kind of set out the playing field of what's going on here. And maybe use some words this morning um, that you're not used to. And if you need me to define those, uh, I have resisted using some of the words I'm going to use this morning. But I'm going to use them. <laughs> Uh, and I'm just going to make an assumption that you know what they are. If you don't, please come and talk to me, and I will try to explain some of that to you um, a little later. But the first thing I want you to see is that as Paul is, is writing this, you'll say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? That this is really a tough issue to figure out. This isn't an easy Issue. And so what Paul is saying here, ultimately what Paul is saying by posing this question is, is that God is sovereign and that man is responsible. Another way to say that is God is sovereign and man has free will. And these two things, the reason that this is tough is because if we, when we begin to think about this, we begin to get headaches because we begin to say, how can the two of those things coexist? Instead of being able to fit together, they seem to bounce off one another, right? Now, I, I want to show you this, that all over the Bible and all over Romans, in chapter 9, Paul is arguing uh, passionately for God's sovereignty. But also in the book of Romans, Paul argues for uh, man's free will or man's moral responsibility. And let's just look at one example real quick. In Romans chapter 1, if you want to turn with me or listen, and I, there are so many things we could point out in this, but I want to point out three things after I read these verses. But listen to these verses. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 23. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And notice this phrasing here. Of men, of men who do what? Of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power, His divine nature have been made clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so they are without excuse. Listen to this. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God. They didn't honor Him as God. Or they didn't give thanks but they became futile in their speculations and their few foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And this is the tragedy of the universe and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and of crawling creatures. And so three things I want you to see that, that are clear from in this same letter that Paul is saying in the beginning and that one, we clearly see in those verses that man is accountable. You can't read those verses and not come away saying that man is accountable. Secondly, the thing I want you to see, and this is debated among some people, but the reason they're accountable is because they have an appropriate amount of knowledge. That's the second thing. And thirdly, where we're going to kind of land and hang in on uh, today is that 
Man is accountable because man suppresses truth and turns and worships other things other than God. Is your brain hurting yet? <laughs> it will. I promise. <laughs> so in Romans, in Romans, what I want to what I want to pose to you, and, and what his uh, church historians and theologians and biblical scholars uh, who take God's word seriously, um, they have used different words to describe what I'm getting ready to describe. But th th there are two things that we have learned or that we know from the Bible about man's ability to choose Christ or to believe in Christ. The first thing that we learn, follow me here, because I'm using words that you, uh, I'm using categories you may not be familiar with. The first thing you need to see is that man is naturally able to choose or believe. Now, I want to describe what I mean by naturally. It means that 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 people, human beings, adults, have... I shouldn't... See, here we go. <laughs> Rational human beings have the hardware installed in them to be able to make a decision or to believe in Christ. The only way that I know how to describe this well is to change the gospel message a little bit, right? So I'm going to change it. Don't just take this part and tweet it. That's what BJ and I like to do to Gary, is take one phrase out of context and... Uh, try to make him a heretic of some sort. So let's pretend for a minute that, that the gospel message was this. The gospel message was, um, in order to be saved, you have to run a mile. Well, what we believe about God, when I say that we have the natural ability to do so, is that if that were the gospel message, I believe that God gives us legs and lungs and the ability to run a mile, because what He commands, He gives us the ability to fulfill that. Does that make sense? The opposite of this would be this. If God said to Lewis this morning, in order for you to be saved, we have to be careful, I had to be careful this example. In order to be saved, you have to use your wings and fly. That would be an example of me not having the natural ability to be saved, because there are no wings you understand what I mean? So all men have the ability to choose and to believe in Christ naturally because we have a brain and we have functioning. Now this can get us into a whole other debate, right? And uh, it's good, and I think it also... Well, I'm not going to go down that rabbit trail. Yes. Now, now, where we get... Where things get a little tricky, um, is that biblical theologians, what they will say, and, 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 and I'm moving towards a point here, so please stay with me. Biblical theologians will say, you know, man has the natural ability, but what we see from the Bible, what we see from the Bible is that man doesn't have the moral ability to choose God. And what I mean by that, in Romans chapter 3, right, in Romans chapter 3, when we look at verses 10 and 11, for example, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is none who seeks after God. Or in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That what the Bible constantly says to us is that because we were born fallen and sinful, 
that we were born without the desire, without the moral ability to desire to choose God. It's not in us at all. Because of the fall, we don't love Jesus. We love ourselves, and we love this world more. Examples of this in Jesus' teaching is, remember, the rich young ruler uh, comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to be saved? And ultimately, Jesus tells him, sell all that you have and follow me. And it says the rich young ruler walked away because he loved his money. Or what about statements over and over again of people who were hanging on and following Jesus and they were walking with Him physically and He'll say something like, pick up your cross and follow Me. And when they realize the hardships that come with following Jesus, they go away. Or what about this? This happened to me recently. That you share the Gospel with someone. Have you been in this situation? You're sharing the Gospel and you're sharing of the love of Jesus and how their greatest need, their need for a relationship with God can be taken care of by, by putting their faith and their trust in Jesus and He's come to take away their sins. And you see in their face that their eyes just glass over and they tell you, I'm okay. Pharaoh, Esau, the rich young ruler, this person that I was witnessing to, they did what they desired. Nobody was forcing them to do anything. They were in their natural, sinful state doing what they desired. And when they were presented with Jesus, they said, no, thank you. You know, across the theological spectrum, and that's where we're getting here in a, in a moment when it comes to this issue, we all see the problem and the solution the same. And we see this, I think, most clearly in Ephesians chapter 2. In verse 1, it says that we are dead in our trespasses and sin. And then we get this glorious verse in verse 4 of chapter 2. But God, because of His great love, made us alive. And so, what we see throughout history is, is when we're looking to resolve this problem of, of God being sovereign and man being responsible for their choices and and, and this sort of thing, what we see in the Bible is that we all actually, there is an umbrella in which we all agree. And so the two names for two groups of people on this issue would be Calvinists and Arminians. And, and these are terms I've avoided using, but I'm using them. And if you want more definition, I can give you more definition, and these two words have changed over time. But here's what I want to say. Both Calvinists and Arminians, when it comes to the issue of salvation, they both agree, they both agree that man is fallen and in need of help, in need of some measure of grace. They are in need of something before they can properly respond to the gospel. Both groups agree. Where they disagree is the um, how or when or what degree that help and grace Come and help. And so, so listen to me. Good Calvinists and good Arminians are good Bible-believing folks, and they both believe in the sovereignty of God, and they both believe in human responsibility, but they do clash at some point. What I want to say to us here at Single Mountain Bible Church 
that if we are standing on God's word, if we are standing on truth, that we can lovingly and charitably figure out this problem that has been um, avoiding us for 2,000 years. That's a joke. What we can do is lovingly and charitably coexist and wrestle with issues as we walk arm in arm as members of this church and love one another and love others and evangelize and teach and preach. We can do that, right? Now, the key, I think, um, in this difficult issue is, is avoiding the extremes of these two uh, positions. Because the extremes of these two positions are unbiblical, and that takes us outside of this umbrella. Uh, and those extremes, um, the second word I think I made up, I'm sure I didn't make it up, but I just am using it. The first word you've heard of is, is hyper-Calvinism. Hyper-Calvinism, um, the end result of somebody who is a hyper-Calvinist, this is the frozen chosen, which I rejected a couple weeks ago, um, but where they would say that prayer and witnessing and evangelism and this sort of thing is pointless because God's going to do it all anyway, so I can just sit in my study and read my books and uh, celebrate my own existence and God's love for me while the world outside perishes because that's God's job and I have no responsibility in that. That is unbiblical. And the funny thing is, is that you see that from chapter 10 in the book of Romans. <laughs> How unbiblical that is, right? And so what, what goes on there is that a hyper-Calvinist is really rejecting um, man's responsibility. Hyper-Arminianism um, would be, and that's the word I kind of made up, although I don't think it's probably made up. Uh, I just didn't look far enough to see who first coined that term to give him or her credit. But that would be, in my mind, this, this stance of God doesn't absolutely know the future. Or another way to say that is humans are absolutely free over and against God's absolute freedom. You understand what I mean by that? That, that when we're talking about this issue of human freedom and God's sovereignty, at some point one of those two things has to give because that's, that's the heart of this debate. And so this would be a real rigid that God is reacting to us as human beings, and that's unbiblical. We can quote Bible verse after Bible verse after Bible verse that talks about God's omniscient, that He, he knows everything, that He knows the future, and that He's all-powerful. So the key here is that we're not pre-programmed robots and that God is all-knowing, omniscient, and sovereign. And here at this church, we can wrestle with this issue and have discussions with one another charitably. Um, we can do that out of love, and we can do that humbly. And so the reason, the reason I go into all that, and this is, I'm closing this off, uh, but the reason I go into all that is that's what verse 19 is all about. Right? Look at verse 19 again. I just want you to see it. Will you say to me, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? If Pharaoh couldn't resist God's will, then why is Pharaoh still held accountable for his actions? And so this is what Paul is bringing up, and this is what Paul attempts to answer in later verses that we will look at um, next week. But, but what I want you to see, what I want you to see is, is, is the, the, the point of this verse, and, and now I want to transition and get into Paul's first response 
Paul's first response um, as he is going to deal with this tough issue. And what I want you to see that Paul does is that at the very outset of this, instead of just jumping into the argument, Paul's first response is to tell us something about ourselves and to get us to uh, look at our own attitude. So another way to say this, um, if we were using some hipster Bible, um, would be something like this. Is God unjust? No, um, God can never be unjust. Check yourself. Or for those of you who grew up in the 90s, check yourself, um, as I like to say. Um, so... Verse 20, as is, is Paul, is, is Paul, is, is Paul is giving us his first response, verse 20 can be read wrongly. Let me read it to you. On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did God make me like this, will it? And so the wrong way to interpret this verse is to say that you can never go to God with questions. That's the wrong way to interpret this verse. And we know this all throughout the Bible. People go to God with questions, and, 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 and God willingly at times gives them insight. At other times, He comforts and doesn't give them insight. So it doesn't mean that you can't go to God with questions. What I think it means is that I think, I think it's clear when you really dig into this verse, as you take a deeper look at it, it tells us how we should come to God with questions. And let's dig in. And the key is, is the Greek word here where it says, um, who answers back to God. Now that's a great translation, who answers back or gives a response. But the, the, the sense that this word carries with it in the Greek, if you, uh, when I was looking uh, in my Bible software um, program, is the sense of that is a sense of um, being contrary or being argumentative or being critical or disbelieving. So it's not an honest sincere asking or searching, but it's more of a, hey God, this is my position, answer me. This is evident from the other time we see this word in the New Testament. You don't have to turn here, but in Luke chapter 14, verses 5 and 6, uh, let me read this to you and you'll get a sense of, of, of this and this word. So this is Jesus talking here. In verse 5, Jesus is saying, which one of you will have a son or an ox fall in a well and will not immediately pull him out on a Sabbath day. And notice in verse 6, and they, could, and, and they could make no reply to this. This is the no reply. They could not answer back to this. In other words, they had taken a position in which they were trying to trap Jesus and so they could not be argumentative with him because his logic was sound. Does that make sense? Where we're coming. Now, we see this, an example of this, and a, another pastor brought this out, and I thought it was just a great example. We see another example of this in the beginning of Luke's Gospel, um, and, and I want to juxtaposition two things. Uh, the first thing that I want you to see is in, in chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. I should get to the right page if I'm going to read it. And this is Zacharias, right? And this is... God is uh, the angel, Gabriel, is telling Zacharias that um, his wife, who is old, is going to have a son. And Zacharias said to the angel, How will I know this for certain? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And notice what the angel says back to him. 
The angel answered him and said to him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their proper time. And so we have Zacharias who is questioning God and, it, and Gabriel says, we don't play this game. I am God's representative. That kind of attitude, here's what happens. Boom. Unable to speak. Have you ever thought about this? Abraham's wife in the Old Testament, when she heard the prophecy and she laughed and her name was changed, we kind of look over that. How would you like for your name to be changed in that manner because you disbelieved God? That's a big deal. Now, juxtapose that with when uh, Mary was told that she would be, that Christ would be in her. And look in verse 34. Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her and said, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. The difference here, do you see the difference in the questioning? Zacharias was saying, You can't do this, my wife is old. Give me some kind of proof. And what Mary is saying is, I believe this is going to happen. How are you going to do this, Lord? There's such a difference in the questioning. And when we get back to our passage then in Romans chapter 9, what we have Paul saying here in verse 20 is that, Who are you, O man, who answers back to God? So what is not going on here is that when we are questioning God, one of the things you need to keep in your mind, God does not need your help as if He is missing information. Do you understand that? It's not as if God has been asleep and hasn't been enlightened to 21st century postmodern thought, and so He needs our help to advise Him on culture a little bit so that He can get with the time. It's not as if that, ooh, you know, maybe God hasn't progressed with the ethics of our time. Uh, you know, maybe we need to help him out a little bit because now that is politically incorrect. God, we need to help you out. And that's not how God operates. And we see that. We see this because notice the two things in verse 20. There's two other parts to verse 20, there's two contrasts. Notice the first contrast. O man who answers back to God. And so we have the first contrast is man and God. And what this Paul is trying to do is to draw us into thinking about this. What is the difference between God and you? It is great. When we compare ourselves to the God of the universe... Remember a couple of weeks ago when we started this section, I read to you this. I want to read it again, and then I want to jump to a passage in the Old Testament. But in Romans chapter 11, verse 33, Oh, the depth and the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments! How unfathomable are His ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who's become His counselor, or who has first given to Him that He might be paid back to Him? 
Paul, in ending this section, is talking about the distance between the sovereign God of the universe and Lewis's finite, fallible mind. And it is vast. Can you think of another example in the Old Testament where um, God displays the three or four chapters of displaying the difference between his thoughts and man's thoughts? It'd be a tough job to do that. Thank you, Whit. We haven't had a good Whit outburst in a while, and that was right on. <laughs> I love it. Yes. So in Job, uh, and I'm, just, I'm not going to read all of this, but I'm just going to read a little bit here. Listen in Job chapter 38 to the first uh, um, couple of verses. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Notice the language here. Here, now gird your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you will instruct me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know or stretched out the line on it? On what, uh, on what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars are sang together and all the sons of God shouted for. And we get over and over and over again in these chapters. In chapter 40 again, then the Lord said to Job, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. And then we get this wonderful conclusion in chapter 42. And listen, this is, this is what I think Paul is doing in our chapter. Listen to Job's response here. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear now and I will speak. I will ask you and you instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore I retract and repent in dust and ashes. And notice in there, Notice in there, Job, is he, is he scared to ask a question of God? No, he says here again, um, I will ask you and you will instruct me. What has changed is his attitude. He understands his position when it comes to God. So man is fallen and he is fallible and God is perfect. He is the source of all wisdom. He is infinite. And the key for us is to realize our position compared to God. And, 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 and Paul gives us another example of this in the text. Look again at verse 20. The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? And uh, uh, it was interesting listening to uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones on this passage. He kept talking about the, that this word means plastic, you know, and, and he's right. I just thought it was funny because Paul had no idea what plastic was. But the image is right. The moldable thing is, is what that word plasma there in the Greek means. It's the moldable thing. Will the thing that is moldable say to the one molding it, why did you make me like this? And what I think this, this, this says to us is that we are in need and He has the purposes. He has the wisdom. He is the creator. He is the molder. Our usefulness, our fittedness, our being, everything we have, we owe to Him. And so it's foolish for us to think that we can counsel God 
or that we, when we come across a tough doctrine in the Bible, it's foolish for us to think that we can be that haughty and that proudful that we can come in and say to God, God, why did you do it like this? So, if you understand your position, you begin to understand how we question God. We begin to understand how we can even enter in this debate and to search the Scripture. The first thing I want to tell you is that when you read the Bible, when you read God's Word, we have to do it humbly. We have to do it humbly. I need help in learning and understanding the Word of God. God doesn't need my help. in understanding and dictating His Word. Do we understand that? I need to humble myself. That we're needy. You know, God has given us a brain. You know, one of the things that I had a seminary professor that used to tell us all the time is that God did not make you without a head. Use it. And what he meant by that is that God gave us reason, God gave us the ability to logic, and sometimes... uh, (laughs) God gave us logic and the ability to reason. Is a better way to say that? Um, And and, and what, what we're saying is that God wants us to use those things, but in using these things, we have to realize that the machinery we're working with is faulty. We should all amen that. We are using faulty machinery. And therefore, when we come to God's Word and when we're trying to reason through God's Word and when we're trying to look at things in God's Word, we need to do it from a place of of humbleness and that we're needy. And the third thing, we need to do it submissively. And what I mean by this is that when we get to tough places in the text or when God is demonstrating to us tough things through His Word, that our attitude needs to be, I'm going to submit to whatever God has for me in this. And this is so hard as 21st century Americans, isn't it? We hate submissiveness. And I'm not just talking about wives to husbands here. Have you sat in the mall and listened to how kids talk to their parents? And what are we teaching our kids? Independence. Don't submit. Question authority. What does God tell us? You can ask questions, but submit to authority. That's what is good and best for you. You know, if you notice, if you take chapter 9 and you take some of the toughest chapters in the book of Romans for us to reason and logic our way through, you know what one of the common themes of is? Paul quotes the Old Testament over and over and over again. And I think the reason Paul quotes the Old Testament is that he is driving home this point to the church here at Rome is you're not arguing with me, you're arguing with God's Word. You can do that. In the right position, you can humbly, submissively, and from a sense of neediness, look into God's Word and ask God questions, but you need to realize that what you're wrestling with is God's Word, and we need to know at the end of the day that God's Word stands. Now... I want to, towards the end, I want to do two things. Number one, I want to give you an example of this. And and then lastly, I want to end with why this is, all of this is vital. And and the example I want to give is something you've probably all ran up against. But so I want to, 
I want to use me. And so let's say that I am in the attitude that my reason and my, um, my, my machinery um, trumps God's word. And I think we're blind to this most of the time when people are doing it. They don't know they're doing it. So let's say I'm reading through the Old Testament and I come to the story in the Old Testament where God says, you take the land and you wipe everybody out, men, women, and children. When I come to that passage, if all I'm using is my faulty reason, if all I'm using is is I'm the ultimate authority, then I walk away with a picture of God that is unjust and unfair. Does God not know that killing women and children is wrong? However, if my will and my logic and reason have been informed that God's word is truth, and that I'm standing under that word, and that I've got a category in my head that the Bible says over and over and over and over and over again that God is absolutely just and righteous, all His ways are just and righteous, and that He is loving, then when I come to that passage, am I still going to have questions? Yes. But what I'm questioning from is God. I'm not understanding this passage where where you're commanding Joshua to wipe out the Canaanites, I know that you're just and your ways are righteous and I know that you're loving, and, but yet this, this feels to me wrong. Help me in this text to see what's going on. And when I approach the Scripture that way, guess what happens? The Scripture begins to unfold. We begin as Christians to see things in the text and we begin to understand more about the nature of God. Now, we're not going to solve that one today either just in case you were thinking. Lastly, as we get ready for the second response uh, next week, and we know our position, we know the right way to question, we know how to come uh, before the text, the the last thing that I want you to know is this is vital. This question that Paul is bringing up in Romans chapter 9 is vital. And it's vital because the nature of who God is is at stake. And that's why I think Paul goes through so much detail hammering this out in this letter. And, and I want to tell a brief story. The first time I preached through Romans chapter 9, a, uh, a family who, is, uh, who I'm really close to, um, that same week as I'm preparing this, the family, uh, I'm not going to use names, but you will know and they won't care that I'm sharing this, but uh, a family, a, a man uh, and his wife, their oldest daughter was in town. Both of her children were on an ATV uh, with their grandmother, her mother, and the, the four-wheel, the, the ATV, it wasn't a four-wheel, the ATV was found upside down in a pond, all three of them killed. And I go on a, I think it was a Wednesday, if I'm not mistaken, um, Thursday, um, if I'm not mistaken, uh, to the hospital, and they had shut down the wing, and uh, dear friends, and I see the patriarch of the family going in between rooms, one room where his wife had had died, her body lay in there, the other room where his grandchildren, their bodies lay with his daughter and her son grieving, and in the hallway, um, his, his other children. And 
one of the things in walking with especially the sons through this tragedy is we've become really close. And through those of you who I've walked through tragedy with, one of, the, one of the things that I see in the Bible that is so vital while I will not let go of the tale of this whole thing that God is sovereign is that it is this exact characteristic of God combined with His other attributes. So, so understand this. God is absolutely sovereign and He's absolutely loving. This provides the only comfort that lasts in the midst of tragedy. That there is purpose in suffering that we may not understand. That these things, that our world is not spinning out of control. We, we don't understand. We don't understand. And, and some of you this morning may be suffering with things. Some of you this morning may have illnesses or cancer or hardships in your life and you don't understand. And I don't know any other way to comfort you than how the Bible tells us to be comforted, and that is, is that God loves you. God loves you, and He's in control. And so to me, this whole thing is vital. This is the way that we can have joy in the midst of confusion. God's Word has not failed. We can rest on Romans 8 because God's Word will not fail. Though His plans are not our plans or how we would do it, He is good. He is sovereign, but He's also loving. And at times, at times, this is a mystery to us that makes us want to pull our hair out. But this is where true rest comes when we affirm and believe in both. So, I know this past three or four weeks uh, has been tough. It doesn't get any easier next week. But what I want you to see is the sweetness of God's character and the importance of us gazing into this book to find out who God is and who His Son Jesus is. And I, I want to end with a, a quote, a paraphrase of a quote that I've used before, and it's just, I think, the best... Um, best that I know, and that is uh, Tim Keller in his book on prayer, I think says it best. He says that if we knew everything that God knew, we would answer our prayers in the exact same way as the loving, faithful God creator of the universe. And that may boggle our minds at times, but if we openly, honestly, humbly come to His Word and we in the dark times, question from that position of God, I don't understand. I trust you, but I don't understand. God will show up, and as John said this morning, will provide comfort for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father, Your Word takes us to places that we don't understand. And God, Your Word tells us that even throughout eternity, uh, when we are not like we are now, that we will spend eternity, eternity learning more about who you are. Because you are infinite in all your ways. You are infinite in who you are. God, the brokenness of this world also reminds us that we are glad 
that this world is not it. That the, the gospel message tells us that if we have trusted in you, if we've believed in you, if we have submitted to your lordship, that God, what you are doing is fitting us for the world to come. God, we long for that day. We long for that day where sin and brokenness don't reign so supreme. God, we ask for you to come quickly to send your Son. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen.